Awesome. Well, thank you, Ruth, and thank you for the music team and everybody who's been a part of the service so far. It's been so good just to be here and, and to be able to sing God's praises, to pray together, hear the word read out loud, and, and now to preach. Um, and also, good morning. I won't make you say it again necessarily because I know everybody's already done that a lot, but it is just really good to be here gathered with all of you and to everybody as well online um, to have you join us as well. And I know there are a few visitors here today, so just very quickly, I want to introduce myself, and my name is David Drover, and like Robert, who just gave his testimony, I'm one of the, the interns here at Model of Mission here at the church. So um, it is my honor and my privilege to, to preach today, to be able to open up the word. And today we're going to be continuing with our summer preaching series that we've been going through. We've been talking about what is a post-COVID healthy church, and I'm, I'm really excited about this particular topic because it's one that you know, I'm very passionate about, and today we're going to be talking about worship and having a biblical understanding of what worship is. So just to get everybody thinking, I, I want to start off by asking, you know, what, what comes into your head when you think of that word worship? What pops in? You know, maybe it's, it's music or, or singing. Maybe it's, it's going to church. For some of you, it might be even, you know, that's something that religious people do. Maybe you think it's an emotional experience. Maybe when you think of worship, you, you think that it's something that you do or a way that you feel. And see, I think knowing that many of us at least have been around church for a little while, we, we'd have all kinds of opinions about what worship is. We, we would, and we're passionate about it. And we should be. That's a good thing. But there's also a right way to worship. And that's why it's crucial for us that we form in our thoughts and our opinions about it based on God's word. So today, I want to start by, by biblically defining what worship is. And actually, you know, for, we're, for today, we're going to actually have two definitions. So the first one is we're going to talk about what, a, what worship is generally, just like a, a general definition of worship, and then more specifically talking about what Christian worship is. So starting with the first one, and, and I'd encourage you, if you have notes or something, you can write this down because it is a little bit wordy, um, but I'll say it a couple times so hopefully it sticks. Here's our first general definition of worship, and this is how Harold Best defines it. He says, Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. So I'll say that again. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, of all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. See, as humans, we, we all continuously outpour ourselves into something. We're, we're continuously or always seeking after what we love and what we desire, and we're not half-hearted about that pursuit. You know, we, we pour out all that we are, our identities. We pour out all that we, we do, our time, our money, how we work, we pour out all that we could ever become, our, our aims or goals in life, to something or to someone. And see, we, we do this because we're created this way. If we read in Genesis 1, verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. See, that's a significant thing, that we are created in God's image. And in the Trinity... You know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're continuously outpouring themselves out to the other persons of the Trinity. The Father continuously outpours himself, his, 
his love, his perfections to the Son and the Spirit, and then the Spirit and the Son do the same back and, and to one another. And we are created in that image. We're created as continuous outpours. And what that means is that when we continuously outpour ourselves, that's our worship. But see, ever since humans have fallen in, in since, into sin since Genesis 3, our worship has often been misplaced. We can worship, you know, sports, entertainment, families, jobs, things like security, control, significance, power, school, health. The list could just go, could just go on and on and on. And, and perhaps you can think of something in your life that you just held with like a really closed fist. You know, something that if, you're, if we're really being honest, something we don't even really want God to, to touch or to have. And let me give you a couple examples in my own life. So when I was growing up, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I didn't have necessarily these, like, huge, vast, you know, I'm going to be this and that and these massive dreams about what my life would be like. But one thing that I did hold really close and, and one thing that I did dream of was getting married. I always have wanted to get married. And, and a couple years before I met Leanne, who is my wife right now, um, you know, and I was about maybe 20 years old and I was still a young Christian, Marriage for me was really in that, that, that closed-fisted category. And I was asked the following questions. What's the good life for you? And what if God's plan isn't what you think? What if God's plan isn't what that good life is? Or it's different? And well, it turns out that God's plan for me actually was to get married. And, but even so, at the time, I, I, I really wrestled with that. Because I knew that God's plan would be better than mine, even if it meant being single. But then still, I, I really still desired to have somebody with me. I desired to have that person who would never leave me. I desired to not be alone. And well, if I were saying a word, I, getting married for me at that point, being a husband, it, it was an idol. And see, an idol is just something that we worship that's not God. One pastor, he defines it like this. He says, idolatry is when we allow anything other than God, to become the center of our heart's true happiness, contentment, meaning, identity, purpose, or security. It's when we allow something else to become an idol, a surrogate or replacement God in our life, ruling our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors. And so I said I'd give you a couple. So here, here's, here's another example, maybe a bit more of a recent one. So... About a month ago, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was like the week after we had our church retreat, I popped out this shoulder, my left shoulder. And fortunately at the time, it, actually the pain wasn't all that bad. It was a bit of a different from what I've heard most people deal with. But after about one or two weeks, the, all the muscles in my shoulder just started seizing up and tightening, and the pain got pretty brutal. And that's not really how your shoulder is designed to work. And I started being pretty discouraged, and I even dreaded going to to bed at night because I knew in the morning that it would be, you know, that's when the worst pain was. So I started having thoughts like, if I could just wake up one morning without pain, then I would finally be at peace again. If I could just sit down for an hour without feeling uncomfortable, then I could get some rest. If I could just move it a little bit more, just do a little bit more with it, then I could feel valued and useful again. This would just get better well, then I could go back to being content and happy. But, but these thoughts, they're, they're totally sinful. 
I worshipped my health. I worshipped my comfort as I began valuing my comfort more than Christ. Instead of trusting in and keeping my eyes on Jesus, I got completely focused on myself and wrapped up in my shoulder and my health. And, and I was loving myself ultimately and not God. And obviously, I mean, marriage and, and health and things like this, these are not bad things. These are great gifts from God, but they're not ultimate gifts. See, by definition, good things are not bad things, and good things, but good things can become bad for us when they become ultimate things. And, and here lies the problem for us in our worship. So often we worship false gods. We take good gifts from God who, who graciously gives them to us, and then we treat those gifts as if they're God. We believe the lie that these things, that they'll give us wisdom, that they'll enlighten us and satisfy us and give us delight, but they can't because they're, they're not God. Health is not God. Security is not God. Entertainment is not God. Feelings are not God. And, and guys, the, wor- the world gets this. How many countless movies have we seen where this, you know, you, you've got this main character and he's this intelligent, he's passionate, um, and, and he's just pursuing his goals. He, he wants to go out and save the world or become the next superstar or CEO. But then when they finally achieve that goal and they have some time to reflect, they, they realize that they're left still unsatisfied. And if there are any Marvel here, fans here. Do we have any Marvel fans here? A few? Yeah, okay, a few hands. Okay, so you probably know, and we, we, we see this in Doctor Strange even. You know, here, here's a guy for anybody who hasn't heard of Doctor Strange. He, he was a top surgeon. He had piles of money, and he was on top of the world, and then, and then he got in this car accident, okay, and he, and he lost the ability to use, lose his hands, and therefore he couldn't be a surgeon anymore, and he goes through this process of of finding his powers and being able to use his hands again, and he, he eventually will go on to save the world and even the universe and all these things. But then in the most recent movie of Doctor Strange, he's wrestling with his own contentment. And he asks his friend, are you happy? Because you'd think that saving the world would do it for you, but it doesn't. And see, the Bible explains why. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says that God has put eternity into our hearts. It's, how we, it's part of how we are designed. And some people have called this even the, a God-shaped hole in our hearts that we're just trying to desperately fill. But nothing in the world will ever satisfy. We look in all the wrong places and are left longing for something more. Because what we are really longing for, what we really need is to know God, to be in relationship with God. He's the only one that could satisfy. He's the only one that is worthy of our worship. We were created to worship him. He encapsulates beauty. His majesty is like no other. His creativity is infinite. His throne and reign is eternal. His love is perfect and unending, and he is on a class of his own. This is the true God of the Bible, and he's not distant. He's made himself known to us. We can know him in Jesus Christ. We can know him, and that's where we now go to our second definition. But This is what Christian worship is, the worship of the true God. David Peterson, he says, and again, feel free to write this down. This is our definition for Christian worship. He says, the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him 
on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. So again, the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. So naturally, that that raises two questions for us. Number one, how, how has God made it possible for us to worship him? And then number two, what are those terms that he proposes? Or in other words, how does God want us to worship him? And there are so many places that you could turn throughout Scripture to go and find some answers to these questions. But for now, we're really going to focus in the book of Ephesians, and particularly in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and Ephesians 5, 15 to 21 that Ruth read out earlier. So for now, just starting off, we're going to park for a little bit in Ephesians chapter 2. So I'd invite you to turn there, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and we're going to see, looking at that first question, you know, that God has made it possible for us to engage with him through Jesus Christ. So God has made it possible for us to engage with him through Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we're going to start in verses 1 and 3. It says, And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here Paul, he he shows us our sin problem. He reminds Christians of what life is like without believing in Christ. He says that we are dead in our sin, that that we were walking and following the world just like every human being. By our own nature, we were children of wrath because of our sin. And that phrase, that phrase, by nature, it's important. Don't miss that. Without Christ, we will not naturally pursue and worship God. An analogy for this, you could think about it, like if you had a lion locked up in a cage, then you had this nice, beautiful salad on a plate on the left, and then, or I guess on your right, um, and then you had this like, nice, juicy steak over here. When you, when you open up that cage, the lion, every single time, is going to want to go and eat the steak before the salad, because that's what his desire is. That's what his nature is. See, without Christ, we we were pouring ourselves out and and living, as you see in verse 3, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and essentially we were living for ourselves. And so as people, when it comes to our sinful nature, when it comes to our deepest desires, what we worship, we need not just help, but we need to be completely changed. We need to be brought from death to life. We were dead in our sins. Without any atonement, without any forgiveness, and without any reconciliation, we could not live in a right relationship with God. But God, in verses 4 and 5, being, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. With the great love that God has for us, he didn't just give us what we deserve by destroying us. That's his mercy. Instead, God then gave us what we did not deserve. He gave us life and salvation, and that is his grace. He saved us by giving us perfect life for our sinful lives. Jesus died so that we could live. And then just try and wrap your head around verses 6 and 7. It's a, it says, get this good news. He's, he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For, for all of eternity, forever, we as Christians will be with Christ experiencing his infinite, the riches of his infinite grace. The song gets it right. What other beauty demands such praises? What other splendor outshines the sun? What other power can raise the dead? Who else can rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only our holy God. Would we come and behold him, come and worship him? Perhaps there's somebody here who, who doesn't know Christ. And if you want to experience this new life, this, this new life that we've been talking about, you can. The verse 8, it says that we receive this grace through faith, that we receive it through belief in Christ. It's through faith and not by works. See, our works don't save us, but when we are saved, we should produce good works. Chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And then now if we, if we flip a page back just for a quick second and, and go to Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 4 to 6, we see a connection here between salvation and worship. Okay, so Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4, he says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And get this, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. So in chapter 2, we see that we are created in Jesus for good works. And now in chapter 1, we see that we were adopted through Jesus to the praise of his glorious grace. And notice that word too, that it indicates a purpose. You know, we are saved with the purpose of praising his glorious grace. Christian worship, it's an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes in the way that he alone makes possible. And our salvation and new life through Jesus Christ is what makes it possible for us to engage with God. So now we, we've dealt with the first. Now we're going to transition to Ephesians chapter 5, 15 to 21, where we'll see how God wants us to worship him. Okay, here's what we'll see. So you can turn now to Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. God wants us to engage him with our daily lives together as the church, and with our hearts. We're going to see in this, this passage that God wants us to engage with him with our daily lives, together as the church, and with our hearts. And just to be clear, again, this is not like a complete list of all the ways that God wants us to engage with him, but it's a bit of a start and a good foundation. So right away in verse 15, we see that Paul is urging the Ephesians to reflect on how they're living. You know, that's what he means when he tells them to carefully look at how they're walking. This passage, too, it's also a part of a larger section where, where Paul is telling them about how they should be walking and how they should be living in their day-to-day lives. Just look back at, at chapter, or sorry, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice 
to God. So throughout this chapter, throughout this passage, we see not Paul only describing how these Christians should live, but also how they should not live. He says, be wise, don't be unwise. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he also tells them to make the best use of the time because the days are evil, just like what we saw back in chapter 2. Paul sees evil, he sees the evil in the world, and he realizes that as Christians, that we still live in the world. We're no longer of the world, but we live in it, and he realizes that as Christians, we're tempted to live like the world, that we can be tempted to sin, that we can be tempted to worship something other than God. And there is a bit of a tension here. You know, there is a bit of a tension because as Christians, we've been given this new life and we have been saved, but still on this side of eternity, we do struggle with sin. But one writer describes this really well. He says, the difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against the dreaded God and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. So Paul, he, he urges them. He urges them to carefully look at how they're walking, to check their day-to-day lives, and he says to follow the will of the Lord. And continuing on that thought in verse 18, he says, don't be drunk, for that's debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And at first when I kind of read that, I was like, don't get drunk. That seems kind of like a little bit out of place, like a little bit random. But... There's nothing in the Bible that's totally random or mentioned without reason. And his main point here is not simply to say just don't get drunk. Notice that he says getting drunk is debauchery. And, you know, just, just in case there's anybody here like me whose vocab isn't, you know, isn't all that great. Um, debauchery simply means excessive, in indul- excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Okay, so debauchery is excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. And again, there's a, there's a contrast here, right? He's building his case. He's building his argument. He's not saying just don't get drunk. It's not just don't get drunk for that's debauchery, but it's also then be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit here, it's not some kind of second blessing. We can understand being filled with the Spirit in a, a similar way that we understand phrases like, you know, he, he was filled with joy or he was filled with grief or filled with knowledge. One commentator puts it, like this, he says that being filled with the Spirit here means that the Holy Spirit is the controlling influence, motivating and directing the lives of believers. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. So, so to summarize what Paul is saying here, he's, he's saying don't live your life to maximize your own pleasure. He's saying don't live ultimately for yourself. Don't worship yourself in your daily life. But instead... Worship God, live for God, seek his will, and live a life that is directed by and characterized by the Spirit. God wants us to engage with him and pour ourselves out to him in our daily lives. And now in verses 19 and 21, as Paul continues, he he describes what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. In verse 19, we also see that it's not just our individual lives, but God also wants us to engage with him together as the church. So part of what being filled with the Spirit looks like is it looks like addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
True Christian worship is not meant to be in isolation. You're not meant to be in complete isolation. When we gather and sing and make melody to the Lord, we're also addressing each other, those who are around us. Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So between our passage here in Ephesians 5 and that verse in Colossians 3, we see that by gathering together and by singing together that we're letting the word of of Christ dwell in us, that we are teaching one another, that we are admonishing one another and making melody to the Lord. So Calvary, it's important. That means that it's important that we sing. When we sing, we are actually worshiping God. He wants us to engage with him together as a church. He calls us to pour himself pour ourselves out to him by singing. And that means that the most important musical-related question that we can ask after any Sunday is how well did the congregation sing? And by well, I don't necessarily mean on tune. I just mean did they sing or did they not sing? And this is also why it's important for us to to pick biblically-rooted songs. Because as we sing to one another, as we are singing out the words of the songs. We are loving on our brothers and sisters around us. We are teaching them. We are encouraging them. We are discipling them verbally by pointing them to Christ. And church, it's been a huge blessing to be able, even just this morning, to be able to sit and stand and sing with you. So I want to encourage us and challenge us. Let's continue to be a singing church. Let's be a church that sings, that worships God by singing. And as we do that, let us sing to God with our hearts. Because God wants us to engage with him with our hearts. That's the end of verse 19. He's, and he's not talking like about our you know, physical blood you know, pumping heart here. He's, he's talking about the heart generally as, as the Bible describes it. And here's how Dane Ortland summarizes what the Bible means when, they talk, when it talks about the heart. He says, when the Bible speaks of the heart, whether from the Old Testament or the New It is not speaking of our emotional life only, but of the central animated center of all that we do. It is what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's what we daydream about as we drift off to sleep. It is our motivation headquarters. The heart in biblical terms is not part of who we are, but the center of who we are. Our heart is what defines and directs us. That is why Solomon tells us to keep the heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life. That's Proverbs 4.23. The heart is a matter of life. It is what makes us the human being each of, it, each of us is. The heart drives all that we do. It is who we are. And well, this fits very well with that, that first definition of what, of what worship is. Again, that worship is generally is a continuous outpouring of all that I am, of all that I do, of all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. And then the heart is the central animating center of all that we do. So that means that the heart and its affections ultimately drive our worship. So I'm going to say that again. The heart drives what we worship. So God calls us to sing to him with our heart. He calls us to engage with him out of love and not performance. When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment was, his response wasn't, you know, to perform well, but instead it was first the most important is to love God, and the second most important commandment was to love others. 
And this is also why Jesus was so often in opposition with the Pharisees. Just look at what happens in Matthew 15, 1-9 when the Pharisees come to Jesus. Starting in verse 1, it says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, God cares about our hearts. What we love does really matter, and we really have every reason to love God and to worship Him. Verse 20, it continues that being full of the Spirit looks like giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And don't miss that, there, that bit at the end, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we see that it's through Jesus that we can go to the Father. And one question that you can ask yourself here this morning and throughout the week, if you're trying to assess where your heart is at, is are you thankful? Are you thankful? As I, as I mentioned earlier, I've had a pretty difficult few weeks with my shoulder and being honest I've not been thankful I've been far from thankful for everything these past couple weeks but I had to stop and look inward and and ask myself why like why am I letting my shoulder control my life is Jesus now no longer enough I mean, even asking the question, the, the answer is obvious. Of course, of course, Jesus is enough. He's all that I'm going to ever need. He's my Savior, and nothing can separate me from him. And, and Romans 8 and 31 to, 30 to 39, Paul writes, he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also with him graciously, give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation Distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us, 
to be able to separate me, to be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And see, even amidst the, the pain, the hardship, the, the trials, the joy, the successes, when I gaze at this kind of love, when I behold my God, I have every reason to worship him. I have every reason to be thankful. Would my life, would all of our lives as Calvary Baptist Church, everything that we are, would we pour it out to him? And out of reverence, and respect for him as our brother Steve preached last week. We need to submit to one another. And that's verse 21. See, God wants us to engage with him in our regular day-to-day life. He wants us to engage with him together as a church. He wants us to engage with him with our hearts. And so what are we meant to do with all this? How, How does having a biblical understanding of worship play itself out in the life of the church. And well, I've, I've got one main conclusion for us here today. Okay, so a healthy church's individual and corporate worship is God-centered. A healthy church's individual and corporate worship is God-centered. Everybody here worships something. Doesn't matter if you're a Christian, doesn't matter if you're not. Everyone here is worshiping something. But far too often, our problem is that our object of our worship is wrong. Even as Christians, you know, we've been set free from the slavery of our sin and our heart has been changed, but how often do we still act like slaves? But what's best for us individually and collectively as Calvary Baptist Church is that we worship the one God who is worthy. In order to be a healthy church, we need to continue to have our worship centered on God. So let me ask you, what is our worship centered on? What's at the center? Where is your heart? What do you love? I think if we're all being honest with ourselves, we can relate to a guy named a pastor named Bob Coughlin. He says that the biggest worship war that we're going to face any given Sunday, and I would submit it's also any given day, is not the war of music style or that the band played my favorite song today or that the volume was too loud or too little, but the biggest war that we are going to face is the war of our own hearts. What are we going to love? God or something else? For me, I know I wrestle with idolizing comfort. I wrestle with idolizing entertainment. I wrestle with idolizing my relationships. I wrestle wrestle with idolizing my ministry and my work. And I could probably fill the, the rest of our days telling you all the potential things that I am tempted to love and idolize. But, I, but I'm also far from hopeless. I have hope in dealing with my sinful heart because of Christ. The solution to, to all of our heart issues is to see them and take them to Christ. It's to turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus. If we want our worship to be God-centered, then we need to grow in our love for God. Okay, we need to keep going back 
through his love for us. That's what John, 1 John 4, 19, it says that we love because he first loved us. So we need to keep going back to his love because his love fuels our love. And his love is displayed in the gospel. So we need to know and preach the gospel to ourselves daily. And in order to know and experience God's love, let's actually read his word and pray often and regularly and daily. And you know, practically, if, if you're not already as a church, why don't, why don't you join in reading 2 Samuel with the rest of us this month and whatever book we're reading next month and, and take that opportunity to read the word together and that way we can talk about it and point each other back to God's love. And also, if, if our worship is truly God-centered, then it will be reflected in how we act. We'll be more generous with our money because we'll know that money is primarily God's anyways. We'll be more willing to serve one another because Jesus did that for us. We'll begin to move from consuming at church to serving the church. We'll actively lay down our preferences out of love for one another. We'll be eager to participate in congregational singing rather than being critical of the sound. We'll be better husbands and wives. We'll be more united because we serve the same God. And am I saying we're going to be perfect? No, absolutely not. We'll be far from it. Will it be messy and struggles? Yes, we're a family. That's what, it, that's what it's like. But we will be a far healthier church if we keep and love God and worship him first and not ourselves. He's the only one that saves, the only one that's satisfied. He is the only one that is worthy of our worship. Healthy churches will keep God at the center of their worship daily and, in, and corporately. And now really quickly as well as we, as we clue up, there are a bunch of things that God does want his church to do as they gather and engage with him. So to give you kind of like a little checklist as we conclude, here are some things that the key elements, some key elements of worship that every church should do as they gather. So as we see in Ephesians 5, our passage today, we, churches should sing together. 2 Timothy 4, 1-4 tells us that there needs to be preaching. 1 Timothy 2, 8 tells us that the church should corporately pray. 1 Timothy 4, 13 tells us that churches should read the word corporately. Matthew 28, 19-20 tells us that the church should baptize. And then Luke 22, 19, it tells us that the church should practice communion. So we've got singing, preaching, praying, reading the word together, baptizing, and communion. And these are all things that here at this church that we do try and practice. We're not perfect, but we do try and practice these things here. So as we gather together, as we live our day-to-day lives, let us be a church that worships God at the center. Would we continuously outpour all that we are, all that we do, and all that we could ever become to Jesus in the way that he alone makes possible and in the way that he wants us to. Let's pray. Father God, that last statement is really my prayer. Lord, with our days, with our weeks, with our lives, would we just pour ourselves out, everything about us, to you, would we come and worship you? Now as we sing, later today as we go and spend time with our families. Lord, would we love you and serve you. In Christ's name, amen.